Gospel of John, chapter 20. We'll begin reading with verse 24. The Bible says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, We've seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it in, in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. This is one of the several times where the disciples actually worshiped Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, or said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Can we say amen? amen. I'm going to preach a sermon. I'm going to title it, Jesus is for skeptics too. Jesus is for skeptics too. So often when we see a failure in a person's life, we often only think of that about them for the rest of their lives. That failure defines them to some extent. So that's what's happened in the life of Thomas. If you look biblically, you look back to the life of Jacob. And when we think of Jacob, we often think of him deceiving his father and stealing his brother's birthright. Or we look at the life of David, and we think of David sinning with Bathsheba. If we look at the life of Samson, we often remember him only from falling in temptation to Delilah. On and on and on, we often define people by their failure. And it's really unfortunate because we never consider the rest of their life and the good they've done and the personality they are, the things they've accomplished, or even the forgiving power of God. And so when we look at Thomas, we often think of him as a skeptic. And I think he was. As a matter of fact, we call him Doubting Thomas. And it's used in modern language when someone, you know, if you're in a discussion with a group and someone says, well, I don't believe it, often you might hear, well, you're just a Doubting Thomas. It's from this story in the Bible. And I think he really was a skeptic to some extent. Because we, we see in the gospel where Jesus was with his disciples and received a report that his friend Lazarus had died at Bethany, which was near Jerusalem. And when his friend had died, it was a close friend of his, all we hear is that Jesus wept. He, he cried about it, but he didn't get up and go and see the family. And finally, after two days, he waited around. And then he looked at his disciples and he said, let's go see Lazarus. I love that. Let's, Lazarus was dead, by the way. Let's go see Lazarus. And then the other disciples knew what that meant. If they're going to go see Lazarus, it means they're going to risk their own lives because they're going back close to Jerusalem. They could be arrested. They could be killed. All that. And so Jesus says, let's go see Lazarus. And doubting Thomas says, yeah, let's go and die with him. And I never noticed that as kind of like a sarcastic statement until, until I was studying this. Let's go too. Let's die with Jesus. 
John chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to go away and he's going to prepare a place for the disciples. But he says, I will come back to you. And he said, where I'm going, you know. And, and the way I'm going to get there, you know as well. And then Thomas jumps in and says, no, we don't, Lord. No, we don't. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then in this scene, when Jesus appears to them post-resurrection, he walks through the wall and comes into this room where they're, they're all gathered. And Thomas had told them eight days before, I'll not believe it. I will not believe he's risen from the dead unless I see him, unless I get to touch him, unless I put my finger into the nail prints. I won't believe it. And sure enough, Jesus walks through the wall and looks directly at Thomas and speaks to him and then he falls to his feet, face in one of the other Gospels and he cries out, my Lord and my God. And a skeptic became a full believer. Can you shout amen? amen? There are three things. If you're a skeptic today, if you're watching us online, I have some good news for you. Jesus loves skeptics too. Jesus is for skeptics. Jesus is for everybody. Jesus is for you no matter what stripe of life you come from, what background of life you come from, what economic status you come from, what country you come from, what race you come from. It doesn't matter what religion you come from. Jesus is for you. Can somebody shout amen? We got a room full of people who've learned that Jesus is for them. And I want to share with you three things that I think will help you see that Jesus really is the resurrected Lord that the Bible says. And let's just dig into this. So I'm going to go through some apologetics this morning. And I love this kind of stuff. And y'all just hang on, fasten your seatbelt, and let the Lord speak to you. And if you've been serving the Lord for many years, I believe this will be a blessing. One reason why we should believe the gospel stories and why we should believe that Jesus really was who they say he was and really did rise from the dead is because of the historical evidence alone. If you just look at the historical evidence, there's a mountain of evidence to back up the historical figure of Jesus. If you just look at the Gospels themselves, we have been given four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I thank God we've been given four Gospels. Because, you know, it's, it's, it provides us a different perspective on the life of Jesus. Each of the gospel writers had a perspective. And they wrote to a certain community with a certain purpose. We know the first three are called the synoptics because they see the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're using a lot of the same source material. And then John kind of stands alone. Probably written later. And all of them were written by first-hand eyewitness accounts or by the testimony of eyewitnesses. We believe in history. For example, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark from the story and testimony of Peter. And we know that Mark traveled with Paul as well. Luke was a physician who wasn't a disciple, but he traveled with Paul and had those firsthand stories of the first generation who had witnessed Jesus. Matthew and John were disciples themselves, walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, saw the resurrected Jesus. Four Gospels declaring the truth of who Jesus was. Can somebody shout amen? amen. Not only that, we have non-Christian sources that testify to the fact that Jesus was a living person in ancient Palestine who started a movement of followers that grew phenomenally. One of those was Josephus, 
a Jewish historian. Another one was a Roman historian named Tacitus. And then as we move on into the first six centuries, we have this mountain of writings we call the Patristic Fathers that talk about the, the Christianity of the, of the founders, of the apostles. They were sons of the apostles, basically, in the faith. Not only that, we have the record of martyrs, those who actually gave their lives for Jesus. Those who laid their lives on the line. We, we know through tradition that of the 12 disciples of Jesus, or 12 apostles that we have by Acts chapter 2, we know that of those 12, we believe 11 of them died a martyr's death, or thereabouts. And, and they went and gave their lives for the gospel. And what would cause them to risk their very lives for the gospel? What would cause them to put their lives on the line if it wasn't for the truth? People will do that if it's something they believe in. And not only that, we see the growth of the New Testament church from the book of Acts on. It grew phenomenally because of people who were on fire who would risk their very lives for a message that they knew was right. Think about Peter alone. Peter was a disciple of Jesus, and at the end of Jesus' life, when, he, when Jesus was taken to trial at Caiaphas, the high priest's house, Peter was lurking in the shadows outside because he wanted to be near, but he was afraid. And he ended up three times in that dreadful night denying the Lord. And Jesus had already told him he was going to do that. And he denied the Lord three times that night, and it says he goes off and he weeps bitterly. He was dejected feeling, and he was crushed. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, Mark chapter 16, he comes and he tells Mary, go tell my disciples and Peter that I've risen from the dead. Why? Because I, Peter, I believe Peter needed a little extra love on that day. And then he walks in and Peter sees him. And now this man who was denying the Lord at the end of the Gospels, now by Acts chapter 2, is standing up preaching to 3,000 people the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Then he's put before the Sanhedrin and tried for speaking in that name. And these were probably the same guys that convicted Jesus only a few days before. And he stands before them and boldly declares Jesus is Lord. And he says, you are the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. What would cause him to have that kind of backbone and that kind of fierce boldness? I'll tell you what caused it. He had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. He had seen him in his resurrected form. He ran to the tomb and saw the tomb was empty. And he was done after that. He was a believer forever. Come on, somebody. Shout hallelujah. The historical evidence alone you have to deal with, you have to take into account. I think about the Gospel of John and John's testimony. You know, some people believe that John wrote a very spiritual gospel, which it is, but some believe it's only metaphor and symbol. I have a friend who uh, pastors in, in the western part of our state, and he said that he would go to lunch with some other denominational pastors in his area and he said one year they were talking about Easter and all their church plans for Easter. And he said a couple of these guys came out and they said, do you actually believe Jesus resurrected from the dead? And my friend was like, yes. And they were like, isn't that all just metaphor and symbol? 
And this is the way some people have been trained to look at the Gospels. But you know what? I think John understood metaphor and symbol because he wrote also the Revelation, which is a prophetic dream, which is filled with symbols. He understood the difference between historical narrative and prophetic symbols. And so when he gave us the Gospel of John, it's a treasure to us that we're reading a firsthand account of probably the youngest disciple who not only was with the Lord but went to the cross with him, the only one, and went to the tomb and found it empty in John's Gospel. He doesn't refer to himself in first person. He refers to himself in third person. And, and, at, and when the women came back with the report that Jesus wasn't, was risen from the dead and the tomb was empty, Peter and John says, the other disciple ran to the tomb. So it was Peter and John running to the tomb. And John got his brag on a little bit because he said, the other disciple outran him. And they ran down to the tomb and they looked in and they saw it was completely empty. So when you're reading the evidence of John, you're reading the guy who was there. I've spent a lot of time in doctoral work on a historic figure from the second century named Irenaeus of Lyon. And Irenaeus has written some wonderful things. And we, many theologians study him, and my doctoral dissertation has been on Irenaeus of Lyon. But what's interesting is Irenaeus sat at the feet of a man named Polycarp in Smyrna in Asia Minor. Polycarp was martyred when he was 86 years old, and his he's martyrdom is famous. He has letters as well that are famous. But he gave testimony that he sat at the feet of John. He was mentored by John. I, so I'm a history geek, and I just think that's super cool. <laughs> think about the historical evidence of the empty tomb. The grave was empty. The grave clothes were neatly left behind. The stone enclosing the tomb was rolled away. The body of Jesus was never found. It was empty, yet there were Roman soldiers guarding it. No one ever claimed to have stolen the body of Jesus. We know from history that the outer garments were packed with spices, which were very expensive. So if someone stole the body, they should have taken the garments as well. But that's not what happened. They were neatly laid there as if someone just walked out of them. Empty tomb, grave clothes left behind. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. And then other appearances. We know of 11 times in the Gospels and Acts where Jesus actually appeared to people or to an individual in his post-resurrection form. Because, you know, he had a resurrected body. And his resurrected body looked like him. It was him. Because he still had the nail prints in his hand. And he still ate broiled fish on the side of the lake with his disciples. In his resurrected body. But yet that resurrected body could also walk through walls. Oh, somebody shout hallelujah. You know, we're going to get a body like that one day. Since we're going to get a body like unto his one day. Walking through walls and flying through the air. And still eating broiled fish and marriage supper of the lamb and all the North Carolinians shouted hallelujah on that. Think about it. Post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Jesus himself had prophesied these things. 
tear down this temple, and in three days I'll build it back again. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. He told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, he said, from, from, he said, I will go to Jerusalem and I will suffer many terrible things from the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. I will be killed, but on the third day I will rise from the dead. And then he rebuked his disciples for not believing these things when he's like, I told you so. I told you these things. Could you not believe it? So if for no other reason, if you don't believe in the Lord for no other reason, historical evidence alone is enough to cause you to stop and think, what really is truth here? What really is the truth? Second thing, there's enough contemporary testimonies. There's enough witness in this church to convince anyone that Jesus is alive and well. There's enough of us in here. We've experienced the resurrection power of Jesus. Maybe we've never seen him in a vision or face to face, but we've experienced his power. We've experienced the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. I wasn't raised in church, but when I was 16 years old, I was lying in a hospital bed and God came knocking on my heart door. He came knocking and spoke to me. I heard what was internally the voice of God and forever my life was changed. Forever my life was changed. Now I've just been chasing that which got a hold of me when I was 16 years old. Many of you are like that. Even if you were raised in church, you still had to come to the point where you believed. And you said, Lord, I believe. And I believe in your work. And I believe in the power of the cross to forgive my sins and to set me free. Amen. Contemporary testimony. I found a few I thought would be interesting to you. First of all is a testimony of a man named Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was the royal professor of law at Harvard University. He was one of the greatest legal minds in America at that time. He had written a book called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence that became a standard textbook in American law schools. He believed the resurrection of Jesus was a total hoax. So he went about using his skill as a lawyer and he set out to disprove the resurrection. After thoroughly examining the evidence, he came to the exact opposite conclusion. Matter of fact, he wrote it in a book, and I love this old title of the book. He wrote it in a book called An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. In which he emphatically stated, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truth that they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. He concluded that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus was the best supported case in all of human history. And he became a committed Christian. Can somebody shout amen? amen. There's also the story I found of Dr. Leah Libresco. And in 2012, she was an avowed atheist and a geeky atheist, she called herself. She was a mathematician. She was interviewed on a show called Unbelievable, and she, she talked about her conversion to Christianity. Up until that year, she had been a blogger of some repute on an atheist channel where she would engage with Christian thinkers. But something bugged her. Something bothered her as a mathematician. And that something is called the, the moral argument. What the moral argument is, it's, it's an argument that just simply states, in the world, there seems to be certain things that are right 
and certain things that are wrong. And she looked at it, and, and what particularly bothered her was child abuse. She said, I don't care where you're from, what you believe, child abuse is just wrong. Just, there's just something wrong with it. And she, she said she would always argue against Christianity by saying, well, if there's a God, then why is there evil in the world? If there is a God, why is there evil in the world? But then she said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten the idea of what is just and unjust? How did I know there was an absolute? She said, how would I know a stick is straight or a stick is crooked if there wasn't a thing called a straight stick? She found out in mathematics there aren't ambiguities. In mathematics, there are rights and wrongs. Two plus two doesn't equal five. Unless you're using some modern mathematics. Two plus two equals four, right? That's absolute. And she saw that it translated to the moral and spiritual realm. There is a right and there is a wrong. See, if there is a God, then He has a transcendental law of right and wrong. And if we break that law, that's called sin. And therefore, we need a Savior. And therefore, you're in the right place this morning. Amen. If there is no right and wrong, there is no God, there is no transcendental law, then there is no such thing as sin, and we don't need a Savior, and you're in the wrong place this morning. Amen. But there is a right and wrong. Hallelujah. She found it out and she became a dedicated Christian. One more figure you've heard of, his name was C.S. Lewis. Lewis was a British literary critic, scholar, and author, and he was the chair of medieval and Renaissance English at Cambridge University. And he wrote famous works such as Mere Christianity, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, you know, his, his space trilogy, The Silent Planet, and all that stuff. So he was a famous guy. But he was, a, he was also an academic and a skeptic. But he became friends with a man named J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he was a Christian. And he became friends with another man who was a convert to Christianity named G.K. Chesterton. And through the influence of these two men, he, he discovered Christianity was true. And he gave his life to Christ in the 1930s. And he said these words when he got saved. He said, I gave in and admitted that God was God. I gave in and admitted that God was God. And the night he got saved, he said, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England was me. And he went on, and some have considered him the most powerful apologist and bridge to skeptics and atheists that we've seen in the 20th century. Historical evidence, contemporary testimonies, and I'm going to give you one more thing. And that is a philosophical argument called Occam's Razor. Now I know at 12.26 p.m. you're thinking about lunch and not 12th, 13th century philosophy. But hang on. There was a man named William of Occam. He was a Franciscan philosopher. And he came up with an argument, and I'm going to simplify it. The argument was basically this. When you're discussing an issue, usually the simplest solution is the correct one. Usually the simplest answer is the most correct. And so when looking at the universe and looking at spiritual things, it seems the simplest answer is the most correct. The simplest answer is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Man 
came on the scene, sinned against God. That's why we have the moral issues we have today. God repaired the breach between himself and humanity. He came down in the form of a servant as a form of the Son of God. And he came down and gave his life for you and I to repair the relationship of man back to God. Tim Keller described it this way. God came down and walked through the bombsite rubble to find us. He came down and he gave his life to find us. And now God has fully revealed his plan of salvation. That's the simple thing. If you don't believe in that, you're going to have to come up with complex arguments as to why we exist. As to why there is a universe. Why is there a creation? And some have attempted it. You know, evolutionists went at it for a long time saying, well, we're here by random chance and selection. That we're only here because we started out as a single cell organism that somehow crawled out of the water and formed legs and lungs. And then one, one scientist looked at it and said, if you look at evolution and the, the origin of species, that if that is true, the chances of that being true and forming people like you and I today is the same chance of a tornado hitting grandpa's barn, blowing apart the tin, and reassembling itself as a 747. <laughs> to say that that happened by random chance and selection takes out all sense of purpose from life. If we're just here by random chance and selection, why are we here and what are we doing here? That's why the existentialist philosopher, the Frenchman, Albert Camus said, if that's the truth, then all that's left is to, is to figure out how we're going to commit suicide because there is no purpose in life. But I'm telling you, the simplest answer is God is real. He created everything you see. It, it shouts and screams at us that there was an intelligent designer behind everything created. And that God loves you so much that He gave everything He had, covenant after covenant, expanding the scope of His redemptive plan all the way to the New Testament when His very Son came, hallelujah, and John saw Him on the riverbank that day and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all the world. And then Jesus could have called 10,000 angels at one beck and call, gotten down from the cross and taken over the kingdom of Israel, but he didn't do that. Instead, he willingly gave his life as a ransom so you and I could experience freedom. Not just so we could escape hell, that's a good thing but that you and I could have life and have life more abundantly. That you and I could wake up every morning knowing our sins are forgiven and love is oozing out of our hearts. That we could go to bed every night with a clear conscience knowing that we're saved and on our way to heaven and having a party and winning others with us all along the way. Come on, somebody shout amen. He came that you might have life. The NIV says that you may have life and life to the full. Hallelujah. So God had a plan that he would work and he would come down. He would give his life. He would be buried. He would go into the grave for three days. And what's interesting is the three days thing becomes a theme throughout Scripture. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, on the third day, God created vegetation and plant life. Plant life is created by taking a seed, burying it in the ground, and then watching life sprout up from the earth. Not only that, on the third day, 
Abraham took his son Isaac to Mount Moriah to take him up as a sacrifice. And when they get on top of the mountain, he doesn't sacrifice him, but God provides a substitute. He provides a sacrifice caught in the thicket, and he declares, Jehovah Jireh, my God, shall provide. A type of Christ. On the third day, God visited the Israelites on Mount Sinai. And that day, he wanted to strike covenant with them because it was the third day and God was bringing new life and a new identity and a new community to the people of Israel. On the third day, Jonah was spit up by the whale. Hallelujah. Maybe he was resurrected. you got to think about it. Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. There are some who believe he actually died in the whale's belly and was spit out as a resurrected man to preach the gospel. If you won't preach after that, then no hope for you. And then Jesus comes. And he says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. So when it seemed like all hope was lost and it seemed like the, the, the guy that we put all of our hopes in was crucified and he was buried to never come back again. He was working his wonders while he was in the grave. The Bible said he went to the lower regions of the earth. The, the early Apostles' Creed tells us he went down into hell and there he declared the victory to the spirits held captive according to Peter. And then on the third day he came back up out of that ground declaring new life, new covenant, new identity for everybody who would follow him. Hallelujah. And John said, I saw him and he had keys in his hand and those keys were the keys of death and hell, meaning he had robbed the authority and he had taken the power of death with him, taken the power of the grave with him, taken the power of hell with him and conquered it all. Sins forgiven, Satan stripped of authority, mankind given hope. Can somebody give the Lord a praise in here this morning. Come on, give him a praise like you mean it in here. Oh, hallelujah. Then he shows up to Thomas and he says, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who will come who still believe but we haven't seen. Come on, look at somebody and say, I believe even though I haven't seen. I haven't seen him yet physically. I'm going to. It's going to be totally awesome. People have seen him in visions. I believe in all of it. I've seen him in visions. But I'm going to see him face to face one day. It's going to be totally awesome. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you believe? I think of John chapter 9. I'm going to close here. I think of John chapter 9. When Jesus heals a blind man. And the blind man is seeing and Jesus is gone. So he doesn't really, he, he, doesn't, he never saw who he was. And then he gets questioned by the authorities, the religious authorities. And they said, who did this to you? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. He's a man named Jesus. And then they, they pressed him even more. Who did this thing to you? Call in his parents. They called the parents in. The parents knew what was going to happen. They were getting ready to get kicked out of their home church. They were going to get kicked out of the synagogue. So the parents sat down and they said, um, we don't ask him. He's of age. And then I love this guy. 
They ask him again, and he says, hey, he was a prophet. I don't know. He was a, why are you asking me? Do you want to become his followers too? Then they got ticked off. And they cast him out of the synagogue. And I love this. He's cast out of the synagogue, and he's walking down the street, and he runs into Jesus. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you believe in the Son of God? He says, Lord, who, I, who, is, the, I never, I, who is the Son of God? Jesus says, you're talking to him right now. Amen. And he fell down and worshipped him. He said, Lord, I believe. All God wants is for you to believe. You see, it all comes down to faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The only way we can please God is to approach him by faith. You look at the story of the woman with the issue of blood. She was commended for her great faith and she was healed. You look at the story of Jairus. When he was told his daughter was dead, Jesus looked at him and said, Don't fear, only believe. And Jesus walked down to his house and raised his daughter from the dead. You look at the centurion servant who said, Lord, you don't need to come to my house, but my servant is sick. If you just speak a word, he'll be healed. And Jesus commended him for his faith. On and on and on, faith is commended. Listen, the thing you need is faith in God. The thing you need is to believe and believe in the Son of God. There's enough witnesses, there's enough evidence, there's enough Bible, there's enough theology that you could read for the rest of your life. But you got to come to the point where you say, Lord, I believe. And I'm telling you, when you step over that threshold of faith and say, Lord, I believe, everything shifts. The scales come off. You're like the person bent over like the woman that Jesus healed. You raise up and you can see things like they should be. Everything changes. No wonder Paul said, he who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have come, become new. Do you believe? Do you believe? Come on, stand with me. We're going to pray. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Father, I thank you for the power of the gospel. I thank you for the power of the simple story of redemption. Lord, I pray that you bless each and every one who's listening today. And I pray that you minister to them, Father, by your power. I know Holy Spirit is here now ministering and touching and speaking to hearts. I pray, Lord, that you just do what the word says, that you draw people to yourself today. If someone's struggling with doubt or struggling with letting go and believing, I pray, Lord, you give them that push, just that push they need today that takes them across the threshold of faith to where they believe now. While every head is bowed, every eye is closed, if you're not serving the Lord but you would like to invite Jesus into your heart, would you just raise your hand? Let me see it, and I'm going to pray for you. You don't have to thank you, sir. You don't have to thank you. You don't have to... I'm not going to call you out and be embarrassed. You don't have to do anything. You just stay right there. We're going to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Others would say, Pastor, pray for me today. I want Jesus into my life. I want him in my heart. Thank you, guys. Come on, we're going to pray with everybody who's raised their hands in here today. And I want us all to pray this. Let's all pray it out loud. And you say, well, well Pastor Hans, this is not the way I was raised. You know, you signed the role of a church and that, or you, we, we taught you were saved at baptism or you had to come down and cry it out at an altar. Hey, I believe in crying it out at an altar. But I just started giving altar calls like this and I've seen lives changed by these scores. 
Because when we, when we invite the Lord into our lives, it's, an, it's a first step and we begin a new life and then you got to walk it out. There's all kinds of amazing experiences in front of you. There's a life of victory. You're going to experience God in tremendous ways. There's a deeper depth that you're going to walk into, but it's got to start somewhere. Let's start it right now. Come on, pray with me. Pray it out loud like you mean it. Father in heaven, I come before you in Jesus' name. Please forgive me of all sin. I walk away from it. Jesus, I embrace you. Come into my life. Forgive me of all sin. Take the place. Take first place in my heart. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose on the third day. Thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I have new life. Thank you that I'm saved. I give you praise this morning in the name of Jesus. Come on, can everybody lift your hand and just praise Him right now? Lord, we thank you for what you've done. Hey guys, thanks so much for watching and listening to the podcast. And I hope these sermons have been a great blessing and source of encouragement to your life. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing today, Jesus is the answer. I can tell you, He is the answer for your life. I'd love to pray with you before we leave here. So if you never accepted Christ into your life, or if you just have a need in your life, let's lift it up to the Lord right now. Come on, pray with me. Lord Jesus, wash me from all sin. I accept you into my life. I repent of all sin, and I place you on the throne seat of my heart. Lord, I pray right now, you minister to each and every one who just prayed that short prayer with me. Whatever situation they're facing, give them grace right now. Give them the power they need to get through it, Lord. Give miracles, signs, and wonders today, Lord, to those listening in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We declare it done in Jesus' name. Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in and listening and watching us.